Hey, BU, before we get started, I want to make sure you know all about Alumni Career Weeks. Much like this season of the podcast, we're taking Alumni Career Weeks out on the road with curated collections of events and resources aimed at our major alumni cities across the globe. In the month of March, you'll see Alumni Career Weeks New England and New York, featuring in-person networking receptions, career workshops, and industry-based events. Alumni around the world can also take part in our online career webinars, exploring topics like networking, successful retirement, personal branding, and emotional intelligence. Take a moment to explore all the upcoming events at bu.edu slash alumni slash careerweeks. Now let's get to the interview. From Boston University and BU Alumni Relations, welcome to Proud to Be You Around the World. I'm your host, Jeff Murphy, and this season, we're taking the podcast on the road to meet some of our most interesting and accomplished alumni navigating life and careers in cities across the globe. Today, my guest is Dr. Joe Frassica. Joe earned his MD from the BU School of Medicine in 1988. He's now the head of research and chief medical officer at Phillips North America, where he leads a team tasked with bringing innovations to patients' bedsides. He also contributes to the world of academic medicine at both Mass General Hospital and the Institute for Medical Engineering and Science at MIT. His incredible career has certainly followed a nonlinear path, and Joe reflects on the importance of his mentors who provided advice and guidance along the way. Well, Joe Frassica, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Would you mind starting us out by, you know, in, in layman's terms? I'm, I'm, the more I read about you, I'm, I'm realizing there's a lot about sort of the research and medical world that I don't understand. Could you lay out for us what your sort of chief responsibilities are at Phillips now in, in your current role or roles, I guess, as you might say? Sure. Well, I have a number of roles at, at Phillips. My current role is uh, as head of research for Phillips in North America. I lead a, a team of... Uh, researchers, PhD researchers, and clinical researchers um, in Cambridge uh, that are focused on bringing innovations to the bedside. So we take uh, great ideas from inside of Philips and great ideas from academic partners and from others outside, from startups, et cetera, and turn them into things that we can create that will improve healthcare. And your, you know, education as a physician is, is really sort of the foundation for that. Did you grow up knowing that you wanted to be a doctor? Well, that's a long story. Oh, that's why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> I always knew I wanted to be in the healing professions. I, I started out in high school um, working at the Angel Memorial Animal Hospital. Okay, here so you in grew Boston. up in, in the area. Yeah, I grew up in Boston. Yeah, okay. Yep. I was a veterinary assistant there, and then I went on to be a phlebotomist at Boston City Hospital or Boston Medical Center now, as we know it. And then at the, at the New England Deaconess, which is now the BI Deaconess, I became an EMT for the city of Boston. And during, the time, uh, during that time that I was in college, I, I developed this fascination for facial reconstructive surgery after I saw a great exhibit at the Countway Library of the work of uh, Varstad Kazanjian, who was a pioneer plastic surgeon, and he, he just was an amazing reconstructive surgeon, had all of his facial models uh, in the exhibit, and um, his background was as a dentist, and he used his knowledge of the face and mouth to really be able to rebuild a face that had been, that had been injured. So he became the first plastic surgery professor at Harvard uh, in his career, and I pursued my first professional degree as a dentist. So while I was at dental school, I explored all sorts of things, including uh, facial plastic and reconstructive surgery, but was, was uh, really attracted by anesthesia. 
and so I uh, took my experience in dental school to, to learn a lot about anesthesia and, uh, and uh, surgery. After I was done there, I decided to move on to medical school, and that's where my BU experience began. So, all right, rewind the, the clock for me a little bit. I know you um, went to UMass Boston as an undergrad. Was it this, the surgeon you talked about that, you know, the, with the facial reconstruction that led you to be a dentist, or were those sort of yeah. happening at the same, okay. Absolutely, it, it, was, his, it was his work, that yeah. I, his collected works that I saw at the Countway Library that really inspired me to, to pursue my uh, professional degree as a dentist. Got it. Yep. And the, the interest in anesthesiology, did you think that you'd be an anesthesiologist at some point, even after being a dentist? Or I, I had no preconception at all when what I entered dental do? school. I would do other than that I wanted to pursue this, this dream of being a plastic and reconstructive surgeon. And anesthesia became an opportunity for me while I was there to learn about the sort of basic science of anesthetic gases and all that was really fascinating to me. And I decided that, uh, you know, that would be part of what I would do going forward. And I quickly abandoned my ideas of being a facial (laughs) plastic surgeon and and moved on to to have an interest in anesthesia and critical care. So wait, when you abandoned that interest, was that during dental school or yeah. once you go? Oh, okay. Yeah. So then how did you get to BU? What is it that brought you to, to get your medical degree at BU? And tell us a little bit about that experience. It, w- it was a need to go to the next step now. Yeah. So after my uh, getting my dental degree to, to move and get my medical degree so I could pursue the interest I had in in critical care and uh, and anesthesia. Got it. So you're here, you're, you're on the medical campus. Tell me, uh, you know, if there are experiences you had that still stand out in your mind as being sort of formative for your career? Were there classes or other, you know, doctors you worked under, research that you did that really stands out to you as as being the first thing that you think of? Yeah, well, you know, when I arrived at BU, I had already had a fair amount of experience and knew a little bit about the basic work of, of a medical student. So it really gave me an opportunity to sit back and sort of enjoy learning and to enjoy the experience. Uh, which which I think was pretty unique for me, Be, having taken anatomy and physiology, basic physiology, and all those other courses, stepping into the medical school and taking some of that again really allowed me to, to really savor the experience and to learn more about the, the sort of basic things you learn the first time through. So it was a, a, a real opportunity to enjoy. I was fascinated by all the facets of medicine. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm always interested in learning new things, and almost every turn there was something new and fascinating to learn. It was just a, a, an opportunity like a candy store, you know, of, of opportunities, and, and that really sticks in my mind. The other thing that really struck me when I arrived at BU was the commitment of the faculty to the students. It was just different than anything I'd ever experienced before. And I really had some great experiences in education up until that time. But the faculty and the staff really treated the medical students as a different class of people, just up on a pedestal to be there to learn and we're there to teach them was the attitude. And that really made a difference for me as a student to really be able to stretch and learn about new things. How do you decide once you're in medical school, you know, when it comes time to sort of pick your practice, you know, I don't know if you um, have the ability to sort of choose your residency, but how does how does that process all work? So at the beginning of any educational experience, you sort of ping pong around, you know, and that's that's sort of 
uh, diffusion that is is a natural thing. I remember I did it when I was an undergraduate, trying to figure out what my major should be. And dental school is, again, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And in medical school, again, there was this host of opportunities. And, you know, really every month, a new thing to learn and a new group of people to to make friends with and to and to uh, uh, to learn about what what their lives were, were like. At BU, I had this opportunity, these opportunities to sort of stretch beyond that as well. So. Um, my fourth year gave me an opportunity to spend a significant amount of time in the laboratory of computer science at Mass General, which was a really formative experience for me to be able to learn a lot about this emerging field of clinical informatics was a big opportunity. Um, at the same time, I was learning about clinical things and about the lifestyles of you know every kind of physician and trying to figure out where I would fit in that in that paradigm and ultimately. Uh, you know, that decision was uh, of w which direction to go in was not entirely made up of my own mind. I think what was remarkable was that during the time I was a student, and subsequently as well, I was surrounded by people who were great mentors, mm -hmm. people who really took an interest in where I was going and what my strengths were. I had uh, Jack O'Connor, who was the, the head of pediatric radiology, who took an interest in my, in my career. Bob Smith, who was in anesthesia. Jack Cahill, who was in anesthesia. Dr. Steve Lipschultz, who was the head of pediatric cardiology at Boston Medical Center, uh, you know, where I was going to do a residency. But even when I, as a medical student, he knew me very well. And all these people sort of helped me make decisions about my next step. David Todras at Mass General, Walter Gralnick at Mass General, all these people were really considered to be mentors. They were people I could pick up the phone and talk to or send an email to and ask them a question about what they thought I could do and what I would be good at. And um, they really pushed me in the, in, in the direction, pretty much all of them, in, in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Of course, none of this was self-made. You know, my, my career up to date um, was all built on the shoulders of these people who helped me. Well, you had and to do the work. <laughs> yeah, that's true, but the work <laughs> was the easy part. It was really the support of this sort of network of mentors and my family. You know, uh, my wife, who's like, you know, the most patient and supportive person who helped me through medical school and, you know, other crazy, you know, professional degrees that I pursued in undergraduate, and my family who were, you know, and kids who were just like, patient, you know, patient with dad who's always studying. So you, had, you had kids while you were in medical school? <laughs> yeah. Wow, how do you balance yeah. that? that? That's just <laughs> that's a That's what you're telling me about, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's both a challenge and a, and a blessing because, you know, having our, in medical school, I had, we had our first child and uh, that was just a, a, a way of grounding yourself. You know, it's so easy to to not be grounded in reality, but to, to have a child at home and, and a, you know, in a great uh, you know, supportive uh, family, you know, really, really helped me to main, keep my head screwed on straight and to, you know, make sure that I was kept marching in the right direction. So you mentioned these mentors who push you in the right direction, which I'm guessing from looking at your story is pediatrics. The, does the, the impact of having your own children during medical school also help push you in that direction? Or I, I think so a little yeah. bit, you know, a, a little bit. Have, having your own kids, you know, m makes you cognizant of the, of the issues around childhood for sure. And, and, you know, the experiences I had as a, as a student, as I said, every month you're doing something new. 
But when I hit pediatrics and and when I did critical care, I knew that that was where I would would live. So tell me a little bit about those first few roles after you know officially finishing medical school. Is it more so research that you're continuing to do, or are you really just a practicing doctor in, in pediatrics and critical care? So I finished my, my um, residency in pediatrics and then followed it with a fellowship in pediatric critical care at Mass General. Mm-hmm. And, and there again, you know, more mentors guiding me in what the world had to offer, you know, and uh, giving me insight that I, from their experience, uh, really helped me uh, move in the right direction. I left, I left my fellowship to, be, to become the chief of critical care for pedi- pediatric critical care at uh, University of Massachusetts Medical Center. Mm-hmm. And then I became the head of uh, inpatient pediatrics along with the division chief. You know, it, I really grew into that role over the course of time. Uh, you know, it was pretty much a neophyte when I started. You know, I was brand new. And uh, taking over as chief on the first day was a, was a big step, but, you know, really pushed me uh, to, to lean back on the things that I learned and to and to uh, to leverage what I learned all the way through from undergraduate, in, you know, working in the lab to my dental career, where I learned how to interact with patients who were unlikely to want to be there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's mostly the dental experience, you know, mm-hmm. and to gain confidence of a patient uh, in a very short time where you don't have a long-term relationship, and then in pediatrics, learning how to ha- develop those long-term relationships with with families and patients really was, you know, one of the more fulfilling parts of, of that uh, beginning of my career. At the same time, I also leveraged my experience in the computer lab at Mass General, and I worked with Hewlett Packard as a consultant in their clinical informatics group for a number of years. So while I was at UMass, I worked as a, as a, clinic, as a consultant for clinical informatics, and we developed information systems for the hospital jointly. And, you know, I'd be in Andover working 20 or 30% of my time and, and back and forth. Um, and that really, you know, gave me the insight into, you know, what it takes to, to take an idea and turn that into something that you bring to the bedside. It was a real, it was a real eye-opener for me. And I, I, I really think that uh, that was a, also a formative part of my career was you know, really taking time outside of the hospital and relating my clinical experience to the kinds of things that will help uh, improve care. After, after that, well, during my time at UMass, uh, Steve Lipschultz, who was uh, one of my mentors as a, as a resident and as a student, asked me to come to Miami to be part of his program. He was the chief of, uh, of pediatrics uh, and chair there in Miami. He asked me to come to be chief medical officer at at the Holtz Children's Hospital and CMIO, Chief Medical Informatics Officer for the Jackson Health System. And, it, you know, he had to do kind of a hard sell to get me to leave Boston because, you know, people who grow up in Boston really don't like anything else. You know, <laughs> we're pretty much stuck here and, and for, for good reasons. But so the, the, the task in Miami was to, to, to put the shine back on a, a very accomplished pedi- children's hospital that had kind of fallen off the list over the, the previous 10 years, had been in the top 20 and had fallen a little bit. And so I went there um, to, uh, to do that and to help them implement some informatics in the Jackson Health System. 
And there again, I learned so much, you know, from my mentors and from, and from the people around me on how to lead uh, groups of professionals. You know, it's not the same uh, as, uh, you know, leading, um, you know, students. Uh, professionals all want to go in their own direction, and you have to – it's sort of like herding cats, you know. To learn, to learn how to do that was a real, a real win for me, you know, to, to really learn that uh, firsthand, you know, on the job. How to, how to lead professionals was a big deal. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, I think uh, my experience in, in Miami was that you can change things. Change is difficult to do, but you can improve things. Uh, and, you know, with energy uh, and with the, with the right uh, approach to leadership, you can get people to follow and to do the right things. Um, we had a really motivated medical staff there, but they, they were – uh, they felt powerless initially because they weren't able to accomplish change. And we implemented change w- together. So what do you think it was uh, about change that you learned? Uh, if you had to dr- boil it down, and I realize we're talking about years and you know, lots of effort of, of a, a large number of people, but those essential things that you, you know, if you gave somebody a list of the top three things they needed to think about in terms of creating change in a culture. Yeah, so... Uh, change is difficult for everyone, sure. and it's you know it's a process that's not um, you know that's not natural to the human. Generally, you know we become committed to our path, and it's difficult to leave it. But the m- most important pieces of knowledge that I learned were that you have to experience a change, and you have to inspire people to change. They have to see you and fall fo- and want to follow you. You can't tell people they have to follow you; they have to want to. And you have to give them reason. Well, you got to walk right? the talk. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So if they have no reason to follow you, you haven't given them the reason, they won't. Yeah. And so it's a, it was a big learning experience for me. So you've mentioned a couple times that it's sort of where I think that you work now it, it is really at the intersection of medicine and technology. You know, you mentioned even in your med school program sort of spending time in the computer lab. Is that what brought you to Phillips? And was it Phillips that got you back from Miami back up here? Yeah. So while I was in Miami... I was also consulting, you know, uh, with Hewlett Packard, and then that became Philips. And it was a oh, I didn't Phillips. realize that. Okay. And so the same people, new name, came to uh, came to be uh, the folks that I worked with when I, I was not working for the University of Miami. And the the CEO one day said to me, uh, Joe, you you're working about 30 percent of the time for us, and the other time in academic medicine. Would you consider flipping that on its head and working seventy percent of the time as for us? in a chief medical officer role and, and 30% of time in academic medicine. And I, I thought about it for about uh, 30 seconds and said, yes, I would. And, and the reason it only took 30 seconds was that um, I saw this combination of possibilities where I could continue to contribute to the clinical space, so continue to cl- contribute to medicine, but also be able to elevate that a little bit and be able to con- contribute on a broader in, in a, from a broader perspective. And so I, I looked at my role and my potential role at Phillips as a way to broaden my impact, to, Im, to broaden my, what I give back to society and to, and to medicine. And that's the reason I made the step. Um, and you know, I think, I think for me personally, it was the right one. Um, I continue to really truly believe that it's also important to give back to medicine in, directly. So I continue to be on the staff at Mass General uh, and teach the fellows uh, and the residents about clinical medicine. 
And, and it's, it's a really sort of deeply held belief that, you know, it's expensive and takes a lot of effort for, for a community to train a physician. And there's resources that are committed to that, and they need to be paid back. So I, when I was a, a medical student, I was recipient of a, a, of a grant from the Benjamin Franklin Foundation. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but Benjamin Franklin put aside about $400 back in the old days. And that was in a fund for deserving children of Boston who would become physicians. Mm-hmm. And from that fund, part of my medical school training was funded. This okay. was a, you know, really a gift. The state of Massachusetts helped me fund my medical school education. So really, I felt and I continue to feel that, that no matter what else you're doing, and however broad you think it is and however impactful you think it is, you still need to give back and teach and, and do those things that pass on the insights that you've gained to the next generations. And I do that at, at Mass General, and I also teach at MIT right. in the Institute for Medical Engineering yeah. and Science, teaching undergraduates and graduate students about physiology and helping them on their way to their careers. I think it's just it's just part of what we do and what we need to do. Well, you mentioned giving back, and I also want to make sure we talk about, I know from some of my colleagues that basically since you got to Phillips, you've been a huge advocate for Boston University and helping create some partnerships between BU and Phillips. Why, what, has, what has that meant to you? And, and if you could talk a little, you know, I know you've been on campus and as a speaker and um, certainly developing some research partnerships. Can you tell us a little bit about your continued and ongoing relationship with BU? Sure. So, some, some of this is um, fortuitous. So our, our research lab um, in the United States, so Phillips Research North America, started out in 1944 in New York. And we took a department from Princeton University and made it the research team uh, back in 1944. And then through the years, it, it progressed and the, the team grew and the organization uh, found themselves in a headquarters in Briarcliff, New York, a beautiful place where there was, you know, cross-country skiing and deer out the window and a view of the Hudson River, and everybody wore white coats and they smoked their pipes and they invented with each other. <laughs> and it was very productive. They did great work. But in the 2000s, we realized that that notion of taking a bunch of smart people and putting them in an isolated place to invent was just not the way it was going to happen because so many things were happening around us. There was so much innovation happening in in many different parts of the U.S. So we decided in 2015 to move that lab, take that lab, lock, stock, and barrel, close that site, and move it to Cambridge. Mm -hmm. And in moving that lab to Cambridge, we really changed our focus from this sort of internal innovation where the DVD and the Blu-ray player were all kind of invented in Philips, you know, yep. with, well, the D- DVD and Blu-ray with Sony, but other innovations just all sort of happened internally. We turned it around and said, yeah, we'll continue to do innovation internally, but we really need to be in an ecosystem where we can bring outside partners in, where we can partner externally and learn from others and bring those then to Philips for us to continue to innovate them and scale them and make them part of medicine. So we moved to, to Cambridge. In, the, in that move, we really had the opportunity now to search out and to touch new potential partners. NBU was obviously at the top of the list. So uh, Ken Luchin and I met, and Ken, the, the dean of the right. engineering school, and we really talked about how we would 
really energize our programs together. Mm-hmm. Um, and we developed some great relationships. We, we one in particular uh, that was really productive was our relationship with the needle, the, mm-hmm. the um, Emerging Infectious Disease Lab, where we had an ongoing program in infectious disease genomics, and there were faculty that were, worked both at the engineering school and at, at the needle that worked together with us to help to develop our product. And so we worked in parallel to, to uh, develop a product now that was released on the market that helps us to identify hospital-acquired infections as they happen. So as the first hospital-acquired infection happens, we use genomics and clinical informatics to pinpoint it and say, this is how it happened, don't let it happen again, mm-hmm. right? And so this was an example of something we couldn't have done in Briarcliff because we, we weren't close enough. We couldn't reach out in everyday talk or be present uh, with our ex- uh, external collaborators like, our, like the folks here at BU. Mm-hmm. So that's how we got engaged. Yeah. And the opportunities for engagement are, are pretty broad uh, here. And a lo- there's a lot of parallels between the work that's being done in our labs, which is a broad portfolio, but a lot of artificial intelligence, machine learning, big data, uh, building forecasting and algorithms for healthcare, some hardware work in ultrasound and interventional radiology, and then genomics and oncology and clinical informatics. It's all kind of a mix. But as I look at our portfolio and I look at the portfolio here in, at BU, they're quite similar. Yeah. Well, I know that uh, you mentioned Dean Luchin. I know you've been on the Engineering Dean's Advisory Board for a while, so thank you for that. I'm curious to know, I, you know, obviously we spend a lot of time talking with alumni about whether or not they're in the right area for the kind of work that they want to do, we think our best guess is that there's nearly 400 BU alumni who work at Phillips here in the area. Not only that, but in terms of looking at our alumni, you know, the number four and five industries that our alumni work in are healthcare, research. If, if somebody wants to work in sort of life sciences, technology, medical devices, is Boston the place to be? Yeah. So. I, I can answer that pretty definitively. Some of it is a little bit of bias, but most of it's factual. In our move from, from New York to, ba- to Cambridge, we did, a, we did due diligence on every innovation economy in the US. So we looked from west coast to east, north to south, and we looked everywhere where there was an innovation economy. And what we discovered in that journey was that the Boston and Cambridge area is where healthcare innovation is happening. Mm. Where it is the most target-rich environment for healthcare innovation. I kind of knew it already. Yeah. <laughs> so I have to say I was not the only decision maker. There were a lot of other decision makers beyond me who really had an unbiased view of this and really followed the journey to Silicon Valley, to Southern California, to Atlanta, to you name it, to Texas. We went everywhere. And in the end, the decision was made without any debate mm. that Boston was the place to be. So, and I think over the last now four years, our experience here has has proven that to be true. Yeah. Our our relationships with external partners like BU, we have a great relationship with MIT, which we established the first day we we came as well. You know, a really strong innovation partnership with MIT um, as well uh, really helped to make it clear to us in the lab and also to our leadership, which is a global leadership that's based in Amsterdam, that 
if you want to do innovation in healthcare in the United States, it should be done here. That's great. So you've you've worn a number of different different but similar hats at Phillips. You also told me so much about how you've had these mentors mentors in your life who've who've impacted you and helped guide you. What how has that informed your work as a you know a leader in research, a leader you know a, literally in the C-suite? How how has that impacted you in terms of what you try to give back to your colleagues and, and other folks that you might come in contact with? Well, I, I hope that it's that it's helped me to be a better leader. I, I hope that those folks that helped me on the way, including my family, by the way, my wife and kids, that they've made me a better leader, that they've they've given me more more of a compassionate view of 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 what people do for for in their everyday life and the challenges they face. Um, I, I try to, to step back and think about where I would be if I were that employee. Yeah. And I try to mentor people if they want to be mentored. You know, you can't, you can't force yourself to be a mentor, but, but um, my door is always open. Actually, I don't have a door. We have a wide open space that we work in. So, uh, you know, my desk is always open for people to come to and to and to talk about where they're where they're headed in their career and you know what the right decision is for them. Yeah. Um, but I I think it's behavior that is learned and I learned it here. I learned about what a real mentor does and what a, a real Sherpa in career Sherpa is. And uh, it was from all these really inspiring people that I that I met here and that continue to today to today guide me in my yeah. in my choices and career. So when young people, young professionals do take you up on that open door policy and ask you about what it takes to, you know, get to become a, a chief medical officer somewhere, again, the intersection of, of medicine and technology, what are those skills, what are those things, those maybe those intangibles that you tell people that they really need to focus on in order to have a successful career in that industry? You have to carry with you empathy. Hmm. So and and empathy in the broadest sense so empathy for the people who will be affected so in the in the clinical setting it's empathy for the patient so understanding their their perspective of their disease and understanding what they want to do to help themselves on the road to health also in in the technologic world to have the empathy for the users right to to, to have been a user to and to be a user, to be a customer, mm-hmm. you know, I'm still a customer, sure. and so to know that what I expect as a clinician from the technology, that that's the empathy that that I think is useful to be transmitted, and and I try to bring that to the table as the voice of the customer or the voice of the clinician, and really be the the Google Translate between what the clinicians need and what the engineering requirements are to get there, right? So it's a it's a big step. Yeah. It's a big step. And I learned that early on that, and when we built our first informatics solution, I was the clinical guide. And I said, this is what we need to do. And they and the engineer sat there and nodded and they wrote down their the requirements document and then they implemented the alpha version of our first informatics solution. And we rolled it out in my ICU. And I said, this doesn't work the way I wanted it to. And they said, what do you mean? It's right here in the requirements document. And I said, but you didn't translate my words correctly. You didn't have the empathy Mm. of what I wanted to accomplish. But trying to do the right thing and trying to do the right thing from the standpoint of the technology, 
that makes it useful for the patient and the clinician. Yeah. And that's not an easy task. In the past, we used to invent things in the laboratory. So we'd invent stuff in the lab. The Phillips was really good at this. They'd make something really great. And the engineers would tweak it, and it would run fine, and the thing would spin. And, and then they'd bring it out, and they'd say, here, look, isn't this great? And people would look at it, and either they'd love it, you know, like the, like the, like the CD, you know, wow, this is, look at I don't have to have a, a you know, a tape anymore. <laughs> or they'd say, what is that? Why did you do that? So that was a sort of hit or miss, but it was really what Phillips was good at. They would take a technology they knew, like they started with vacuum tubes or light bulbs, right? And they leveraged it to become, uh, to, to make x-ray tubes because it's just a different wavelength of light. It needed a vacuum tube. And then they said, you know what we could do? We can take that vacuum tube and we can make VDTs out of it. So they became a television manufacturer. And then from the VDT, they said, well, major parts of that are in cameras, in video cameras. So they got into the video camera field and then record, sound recording, you know, there's all sort of one technology leveraged on the other. And that was all great, right? It really worked for a long time. Except today, you know, leveraging and throwing technologies over the wall doesn't work. Clinicians and patients, they want an answer to a problem. They don't necessarily just want a new technology. You know, they don't want a new box to carry in their pocket. We already have a good one. What they want is the answer to the problem. How do we solve this problem in clinical care? How do I solve the problem of hospital-acquired infection? Mm. Not what's the technology underneath it. I don't really, I know m my counterparts in clinical medicine really don't care about the technology. They just want to solve the problem. How do I make sure that a patient's safe throughout their journey in the healthcare system? That's the problem they want to solve. Well, Joe, thanks so much for uh, taking time to talk with us on the Proud to Be You podcast. My pleasure. Thanks again to Joe for joining me on Proud to Be You. He's got a fascinating career story to tell, and I really learned a lot about the intersection between technology and healthcare. If you want to keep up with all the great work Joe continues to do at Phillips and beyond, be sure to follow him on LinkedIn. On behalf of everyone on the BU Alumni Relations team, thanks so much for listening to Proud to Be You. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast wherever you find your episodes. I'm Jeff Murphy, and no matter where your path takes you, be proud to be you. The Proud to Be You podcast is produced by Boston University Alumni Relations. Our theme is from Jump and APM Music. To learn more about Proud to Be You, visit bu.edu slash proud to be you.